It moves us to receive, to action, and answer, and to give. Finally, Joan was introduced to Charles, who was very skeptical about these forces, and so she offered to prove herself to him and what was happening by answering three questions that only he knew the answer to. Well, she nailed the answers, and she spoke directly to his heart, very boldly. Her divinely inspired insight convinced Charles to believe in the mission, but still, he sent her to bishops and doctors to be examined just in case there was something wrong. And so, this illiterate young woman sent or stood her own against the probing and deep questions of faith that were asked of her. She stood her own and God supplied her with the wisdom to answer. They found nothing heretical in her claims of supernatural guidance. Her divinely inspired insight was, um, I'm sorry, two more divine events to her mission. She needed a sword. And so she wrote to a priest at a chapel and said, my sword is buried behind your altar. Sure enough, there was the sword. The second thing was a letter from 1429. The letter still exists today, and it spoke of events not yet taking place. The writer of the letter said that Joan was going to deliver the city of Orleans, that she was going to compel the English to lift the siege. She would be wounded but survive, and Charles, would be crowned king before the end of summer. These things happened just as Joan knew they would. Here's the good stuff. Joan had this incredible presence of the Lord on her that drew people every single place that she turned. Charles arm was a bold morale, disillusioned, and it was starting to desert. And here comes Joan proclaiming high vision from God. I, he has called me to raise an army of the Lord and for this nation. And so as her presence became known, soldiers began rushing to her side. You guys, by the thousands, they came rallying around her. Rough, vulgar, immoral men who found her innocence and her spiritual hiding to be patriotic and irresistible. Her presence filled them with a new vigor and courage. And she held up a standard of righteousness and purity and devotion to the Lord, and they rallied around her. She had requirements for being part of her army of the Lord. She banished camp prostitutes. She told the soldiers that they had to attend mass every day. And she said, there will be no cursing and no swearing. They all agreed. The army embraced these standards, and it was enthusiastically, and it was miraculous to see one whole body come together and move into holy living. Joan's voice is stronger than she had one year, so she was really ready when she took to the battlefield. Her voice is continued, telling her that she was going to be taken prisoner. And in 1430, she was pulled from her horse and became a prisoner of war. The English were desperate to give up against on her because they were furious. They hated her because she, they were embarrassed because she had defeated them in battles. And they knew that they couldn't just execute Joan because she had defeated them in battles. So they decided that their strategy was to condemn her as a witch and a heretic. So um, they claimed that her voices were satanic and that the 
there's no way that she could have won those battles without the aid of the powers of darkness. So despite being this young woman in her teens, unable to read or write, without any form of religious training, without any being questioned about all the fine points of religion and faith and theology by men who were determined to condemn her, Joan stood firm, and God gave her the wisdom to answer every single question on target. She spent months and months in awful, awful conditions of imprisonment. The record of Joan's trial really leaves little room to doubt either her absolute devotion to the Lord or her courage with which she stood with him. Still, in the end, Joan was condemned to death and handed over to be executed by burning at the stake. But Joan's behavior when facing death was amazing. She was moving even her bitterest enemies to tears. The standard practice for burning at the stake in those days was to lay the wood around the front of the victim. And then when, this, when the uh, flames started to rise, the executioner would actually step in and strangle the person from behind. It was considered an act of mercy, but not in Joan's case. The wood was surrounded, was surrounded Joan completely, and she faced the flames fully conscious. And when she cried out for the cross to be held up, someone did that. And she began to proclaim the name of Jesus. And not only that, outwardly she began to speak forgiveness over each and every person who had, who had hurt her. And she also poured out words of love and devotion to Jesus. Everyone watching was deeply moved by her witness. Many were convicted by what they had done, and they recognized that Joan could not have been a heretic. Some were moved, so convicted that they were moved to repentance right on the spot. According to some people, they saw the name of Jesus written in flames above Joan. Another person, not more than one person, other people said that they saw a dove fly out of the flames. And even the executioner said, all of Joan burned except her heart. Pretty amazing story, huh? So what does Joan's life say to us today? Well, first of all, we can take courage from the simple fact that Joan was so ordinary. We're just ordinary people, guys, but God wants to use us. And she made herself available to God. She was completely sold out to him. And so I ask you, how available have you made yourself to God? Her example also dares us to believe in whatever God calls us to do. God told Joan, go on, go on, daughter of God, I'll be with you, I will be your help. And I think he says the same thing to us today. Go on into your destiny, go into your calling, go into your place before the Lord, go on, push through. Let me show myself strong on your behalf. God looks for people who will be available to him. Consumed in heart and mind with him. And all that mattered to Joan was fulfilling that. She pressed through the heart of the English army, moving through the hardest and the greatest difficulties in order to reach victory. This is the same with us today. 
we genuinely need to go to the place that might be the most difficult for us. And we need to go to the place and let go of our fears where the enemy is constantly bombarding us and enthrone Jesus right there. Many believers have the wrong concept of courage. It doesn't mean how you don't care. It doesn't, on the contrary, it means acknowledging that fear and surrendering it to God and pressing ahead in spite of it. Courage arises out of our security in God. We don't have courage because of who we are. We have courage because of the indwelling presence of God. That's how we have it. And spiritual courage means making ourselves vulnerable and opening up to the places that God wants to touch in our lives. We move from our fears and our intimidation to looking at God, getting close to Him, and stepping out in Him. I'm still learning. So are you. But I can say this. When I see a hurting person and the Lord highlights them to me, I reach out and I encourage them. Just this week, I bought the lighter breeder <laughs> a cup of coffee as I frequently touch base with her heart. About a year ago, um, the Lord highlighted her to me and said that this, she, she's a hurting person. And so um, there I was in the middle of the, of the doors of my ear thinking, this is really crazy. What, you know? And the Lord had given me a message to pass to her. So I stopped and said, you know, hey, man, I had a cup of coffee while she was working. And it ended up being a great conversation. And the Lord spoke boldly to her heart through me. And now her friend is reading Facebook. <laughs> and we talk about Jesus and then touch base with her heart all the time. Um, so we step out, you know. I believe that God wants us all to live free and unencumbered by fear. He desires that personal relationship and he's protective of that relationship. And he fights on our behalf to set us free from the cloaks of fear, intimidation, and comparison that the enemy tries to use to smother the life breath out of us. Second Corinthians, 2 Timothy, both say that the Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of courage. And so what about the past? All of us have painful memories of sin and mistakes in our past. That's one of the powerful weapons that the enemy uses against us. To intimidate means to make timid or fearful, frightened, especially to compel or deter as if by threats. Listen, he beats us up, right, over the head. And the thing is, we help him do it. So we agree with him about ourselves and the accusations that come against us. And pretty soon we have guilt and shame and fear and intimidation that rise up to tie us down. We allow him to intimidate us over and over again until we believe it and we actually live our lives out of that place. We all experience bad stuff from time to time. If we're not careful, the enemy will use it to eat away at us. Maybe you've tried to do something that you thought God called you to do and love Peter, you stepped out and then you sank. Maybe, maybe God's not as faithful to you as he is to someone else. Seeds of doubt. I started writing this, and about two weeks ago, I threw it out. I was all done with it, and I threw it out. And I threw it out because I was so intimidated, because I realized there's people smarter than me. I realized there's people more scholarly than me. I realized there's people more eloquent than me. And I thought, I'm not going to get up here. 
sat me down and told me to press through. So I did. I kept the message and uh, here I am. And we go so far as to come here. <laughs> come here and believe that God's going to move in someone else's life and not our own. Can we really trust Him to be true to our words? Well, these Psalms and Isaiah and Lamentations listed there always tell us that God is faithful. That his loving kindness stretches to the skies, that he has new mercy and faithfulness for us every morning. So if you have seeds of doubt, go there and recognize the faithfulness that God has for you. And more as you know, there are banners that fly, flags that fly at the front of the army. They're so significant, those banners. Everybody rallies around them. They stand for something. They mean something in the hearts of men and women who are in the war. Well, we have a banner as believers. We have a banner and it flies over us. And Psalm of Solomon 2 4 says that the banner over us is God's love. That's what we rally under. That's what's over us. It's so, he's so faithful and true. So when you're battling through an intimidation, look up. See the banner that's flying over you. And listen, God doesn't send us out on our own. Take your banner, lace it with mine, and I'll lace it with Nikki's, and then we'll lace it with Francis, and then we'll lace it with Dave's. And pretty soon, we have this large sheltering pancake. And it releases God to do even more, because everyone together is affirming his love and faithfulness. Like him, you're in the Lord's army. You would lead from intimidation to courage to spiritual power. The cost for Jones to courage with death. Sometimes courage costs us everything and sometimes not. But our rewards are always amazing. As we learn to depend on him rather than ourselves, he releases his power in us and through us. Power that can change families. Power that can change a city. Power that can bring us freedom when we don't have it. So listen to what you heard. Well, I'm not going to read it again, but that passage in Ezekiel, and you're probably wondering why in the world the Lord chooses Ezekiel chapter one for a reason. Well, I want to take you somewhere. Have you ever wondered what heaven is like? Have you ever wondered what smells might invade you and what sights might dazzle you as you walk along the streets? Have you ever been caught up even by Jesus into the heavenly realm like Ezekiel was? How is heaven described to us? I want to tell you, Moses, Ezekiel, and John give us this insight into the daily life and rhythms of heaven, happening right now. They tell us that the streets of gold are simultaneously as clear as crystal. The walls are gloriously translucent made of jasper. Heaven's foundations are precious stones, and there's a river of life running through it, flowing from the throne of God. There's trees lining heaven's streets, and they miraculously produce 12 different kinds of fruit. And their harvest, they're so bursting with life that they need to be harvested every month. The Bible tells us that the throne room in heaven is a cold place. Around the outside edge of the throne room are many angels. In fact, Daniel gives us an outcome for the number of angels. 
started walking toward the middle of the throne room, you probably get lost in the crowd of angels. But even then, it would take you a few days to traverse to the middle of the throne room floor. The deafening noise of the angels, the hundred million voices proclaiming worthy is the Lamb. That's what you would be hearing. The deafening noise, devoted songs of worship would fill your ears, and they're singing with one resounding roar to guard the throne to the light of Jesus. They're proclaiming how different, how powerful, how wise, how strong he is, how breathtaking, beautiful, how glorious he is. And finally, when you get to the center of the throne room, this old and noisy arena, you would find the living creatures and the elders encircling the throne. 24 elders sitting on thrones with crowns that they eagerly cast down at the feet of God. And the four living creatures each have six wings and eyes all over their bodies. If you were to raise your babies over the tops of the heads of these incredible creatures, you would see a huge throne above, with some practically indescribable seated on it. And you would see our Lord God Almighty on the throne with the appearance of jasper and ruby and carnelian and very bright glowing hot metal. God is shining with fire and red and orange colors. A full rainbow that looks like an emerald is encircling the throne. And the throne is deep blue sapphire, flaming with fire, and its wheels are ablaze, and the throne's foundations are righteousness and justice. The train of God's robe fills the whole temple. How big must the robe of God be to build the temple where 100 million angels are in perpetual worship? It's big. There's clouds around him lit up by flashing lightning and explosions of brilliant light, a volcanic river of fires foaming out before him. In front of that there is a sea of glass which is also clear as crystal. And there's seven flaming lamps. And what is it? The roar of heaven's voices aren't enough, deafening enough. Out of the throne is coming awesome rumblings and thunderings. You are now standing in the throne room of heaven. Meanwhile, picture the scene down here on earth. What's happening? Well, down here on earth, on the mountainside, outside Jerusalem, first century Judea. It's ascension day. The day that Jesus' body left the early ground, the earthly ground, and this remarkable Jewish man who's risen from the dead is enveloped in a chariot cloud and taken up to the Father. At this very moment in history, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen Lamb, walks right back into the throne room of heaven. And now his hair is as white as wool, and he has um, his eyes are burning with fire. He has a satchel over his robe, and out of his mouth comes a fierce, double-edged sword. His feet are glowing, and his mouth sounds like a voice of many waters, probably more intense than Niagara Falls. 
Your gifts are meant to enforce the kingdom of Jesus Christ. When we receive coming, uh, when we think of the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's expressed in a determined way. But you shall receive power, right? When the Holy Spirit comes. That's from Acts 1.8. The Greek word, you know, for power is dunamis. But did you know this? One of the earliest translations and understandings of that word is force. In other words, we might say, you will receive a force when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you do spiritual gifts, you have a remarkable ability, an explosive strength and forceful power. The kingdom of God is a spiritual force. Some believers have fallen asleep. I'm just saying that. Especially to the original intent of God to make us a spiritual force and to empower us to rescue people. We're usually more interested in being well thought of. We're interested in not wanting to stand out too much. We're interested in being strange or different, too late for me. We're afraid to step towards others in fear that we might accidentally offend them. Let it go. Think this instead. I have been asked to intervene in the world and to rescue many. Do you need to recapture an inner way of seeing the world that understands this? I'm a solution. I'm carrying spiritual force. My spiritual slingshot, my spiritual gifts, my bow and arrow will liberate you and show you Jesus. The spiritual gifts are divine empowerments to operate in the power of God and to rescue people. What God has put in me and you will change lives. You've been entrusted with powerful gifts from the most powerful place in all of the earth and heavens. Psalm 1103 says in the Amplified, your people will offer themselves willingly to participate in your battle. You and I are in the Lord's army. God's courageous people is an army of volunteers, people who have come, who have been